And uh, we're going to be listening first to some words um, in the Gospels, in the Gospel of Luke chapter 8. After this, Jesus travelled from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, two and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, the Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. And then in chapter 10. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who was sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will be not taken away from her. Then later in that chapter, the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be rise again. Then they remembered his words. When they came from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Jesus, thank you that you've done so much for us individually, but also uh, for groups that are otherwise perhaps overlooked. And we pray now, Lord, uh, that we would hear your word of encouragement to each of us, that you are a game changer, Jesus. And in following you, we can be a part of your glorious, game-changing nature. Pray for Andy as he comes now. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Um, this, is, this is quite a big subject, I think. It's, I think it's big in a number of ways. Um, you know, geez, this whole thing of how Jesus changes culture, uh, particularly in the context of women and children, um, it's big because there's so much actually to celebrate, um, and yet we look at our world and realize there's still so much to change and still so much to challenge uh, and to do in all of that. 
But to really understand the impacts that Jesus has had, we, we first need to really understand the culture um, of his day. Um, and there's an apologist, Joel Vitale, who impacts this incredibly well. Um, because for a w- women in particular, it depended on her kind of social economic background as to what sort of she experienced, um, whether she lived in a city or whether she lived out in the countryside. Uh, but basically, with the exception of the very, very wealthy, women didn't have the freedom and independence that we kind of consider uh, the, the norm of today, if you like. So either they were under the authority of their father or they were under the authority of their husband. Um, in Plato's philosophy, uh, women were always seen as inferior in every sense of the word uh, to men, uh, whether morally, intellectually, uh, spiritually, physically, every sense of the word, uh, that was the view that they had. So in the Greek and Roman households of the day, there was a very strict hierarchy um, uh, within there, a very strong hierarchy. So generally, women were not allowed outside of the home. Um, married women would tend to be pretty secluded, and unmarried daughters were just kept inside a lot of the time. And that was the wealthy. Then there was the poor. And if you were poor, then the chances were very high that you would end up a slave uh, in some context. And therefore, as a slave woman, you would be the property of your master and could be used for whatever. And that includes sexually. uh, Very, very different world um, to what we perhaps know uh, here in in our country today. But in the 4th century BC, uh, the Greek philosopher Diogenes, he wrote this about it. He said, in the culture, in that culture... Men would keep a mistress for pleasure, keep concubines for their bodily needs, and keep a wife for children and for guarding the household. Uh, Aristotle, again, he wrote, and it sounds quite good, this, the building blocks of community being friendship and trust. But yet, he goes on and he says, but the relationship of a husband and a wife is that of a ruler and the ruled. That is the context. And so there's a sociologist of religion who's looked at that, and to him, he's amazed that every woman didn't become a Christian because of the freedom that Christianity actually brought and the liberation that it brought. So Roman girls would generally would marry in their very, very early teens, um, 12, 13, 14, uh, 15, that sort of age, and they would very usually marry someone, a guy who was in his 30s or beyond. And they could be divorced at the snap of the fingers. They could be abandoned just like that. There was no divorce courts. There was no settlements. There was no support afterwards in any context. Whereas Christian women tended to get married about 18, 19. And they had a lot of say in who they married. And within Christendom, then divorce was considered as unallowable. So it was a very different kind of culture that that was brought through Christianity. Back in Roman culture, it was thought normal for men just to play around, but it was thought of as a sin within the Christian world to do so. So for Christian women, they had a far more secure and a far better life uh, in all of that. And then there's children, and girls in particular, um, and the the preference that there was for a a male child over a female child, um, which again, just, just horrible, horrible stuff. But the Roman, first, the Roman uh, writer from the first century, a guy called Seneca, said this. He said, we drown the infirm at birth. Horrendous. Okay, it wasn't considered then something to be embarrassed about or something to hide. It was actually the way they viewed life. So if a child was born and it was male and healthy, then they wanted it to live. But if it was a girl, then that was less important. 
That's how horrible the view was. And it's reckoned that there were some, uh, for every million girls that were born, there were sort of 1.3, 1.4 million boys. There was a clear uh, favoritism, if you like, towards uh, boys over girls. You know, even in ancient Greek culture, it was very rare for there to be more than one daughter in a family. You know, they found an inscription in, Delphus, um, in Delphi sorry, uh, where they found 600 families and only 1% of them had more than one daughter in the family. <coughs> and uh, so the rest of them, okay, when they were born, were just left out. They were left to either die and abandoned or they were picked up and potentially taken into slavery. And all the research shows there was a higher percentage of those that were abandoned were girls because they were seen as a drain rather than an asset. That was the culture, that was the thinking of, of that part of the world, it's of, that, of that age that we go back to. Another aspect that is worth looking at very briefly is, is abortion. And that, again, was very widespread in the Roman Empire. So this is an age when there's no antibiotics. This is an age when they don't really understand about uh, healthcare and you know, germ-free and cleanliness. And so the, the fatality rate was massive. So many women would die from that. So you, the question is, well, why take such a risk? And the reason is because they didn't choose. It was the husbands that chose. And they could see a, a wife as being someone who is very easily replaceable. Okay, horrendous, horrendous situation. Not a world that we want to be in. And yet today, you know, we still see uh, the effects of modern slavery. We see the things that are happening in our world. In fact, more than now than ever before, uh, you know, human trafficking has become the fastest growing crime in our, on our, in our world. Um, some of you may have seen the interview this week on BBC News from that, that girl, uh, that woman, Michaela. Um, and um, she's a single mom. Um, you know, her child's been fathered by a trafficker. And, and these girls are promised jobs. You know, they come from poor backgrounds, deprived areas, and they're promised jobs as waitresses and hairdressers and nurses. They even get working visas, um, which ends up making it actually quite difficult to prosecute the traffickers later on. They come to a destination country where they think they're being met by a job agent, and it's actually a trafficker. You know, they have their passports taken, their papers taken. They're in a country they don't know with a language they've not learnt, totally entrusting this agent and then they're taken to an apartment and, and raped 10, 15 times a day. No way of getting out, no legislation often in the countries that protects them. And in fact, often when they do go to the police, because they have no papers, they're seen as the criminal. They're seen as the, the illegal immigrant rather than the victim of the crime. And so often it is the vulnerable, it's the most vulnerable. It's, it's women and children of communities um, that are taken against their will in all of that. And we'll come back to some of that um, later on. So, so what has Jesus got to do with all of this? You know, what has this Christian faith got to do with all of this? Well, John tells us, and, uh, and Luke tells us about that first Easter Sunday morning. And he tells of the women that come to the tomb to anoint the dead body of Jesus. But his body's gone. Okay? He's completely gone. And then he appears to Mary Magdalene. She sees the gardener, doesn't recognize him at first, and then he reveals himself to Mary as the risen Jesus. So Jesus appears to a woman first. And this is really important for two things. First of all, in the credibility of the story. In that day, if you were making this story up of the resurrection, you would not have a woman being the first person that saw Jesus. 
Because in the culture of their day, women had no status and had no standing. Even there it says, it's as if she's talking nonsense. Even they don't believe what is going on. And the second is it demonstrates the importance that women had and had in the life and ministry of Jesus. And even the early church gave women prominent positions and dignity in all of that. Women had an important place in the ministry of Jesus and as the church unfolded also. So in a time when Jewish men would regularly pray, and you've probably heard this, I thank God that I'm not a Gentile, I'm not a slave, and I'm not a woman, which to be honest, I used to think was a more of an arrogant statement, but now I'm beginning to think actually, if you were a guy and you realized how women were treated in that culture, you probably would pray that, because you're probably grateful for what you didn't have to go on, you know, go through. But the way that Jesus comes and, and socially interacts with women is amazing. So often they were segregated and secluded, and yet Jesus counts these women as his friends. He's financially supported by some of them. He travels with them, as we read in Luke 8. You know, he's getting a bad reputation because of it, because he associates with, with women. He's supported by women, some of whom have even got um, you know, prostitution in the backgrounds as well. And yet Jesus is more concerned about welcoming women than he is about his own reputation. His teaching is radical. On the Sermon on the Mount, you know, he begins by, by sharing uh, all of these words, and then he starts uh, to talk about divorce, a time when men considered divorce as something you just wrote a certificate and gave it to, to the wife, if, as it were, and abandoned them. Jesus says, any man who divorces a woman except for the sake of adultery is himself committing adultery. Yeah, that might seem strange in our culture, but it was designed to protect women. It was designed to give them the security that they would not have had in their culture. And he goes on and he says, whoever looks at a woman lustfully commits adultery with her in his heart. And we think, well, that's a bit harsh. You know, but in that day, women were written about as only being dangerous and seductive. You know, there's a, a rabbi apparently who said it was more dangerous to walk behind a lion, a woman, than it was to walk behind a lion. Yeah, that was, that's how they viewed things. They only led people astray. You know, that was, that was their only kind of uh, what they brought to life. And it's into that culture that Jesus says this. He says, if, if you're a man and you're struggling with lust, you know, if you're objectifying women, you can't put the blame on these women. It actually begins in your own hearts. And that is radical. It was radical then. It's radical now. Um, I was reading a, a BBC uh, World News reporter, Cathy uh, Kane. She's writing about the Trump tapes uh, that we've all heard about in the last few weeks, you know, referring to those scandalous comments of Donald Trump. And she's asking the question, is there actually a silver lining in this? She writes this, The outpouring of revulsion at what Mr. Trump said is that in that now infamous videotape shows how much attitudes towards women have changed. As women have assumed more influence in the workforce, there's more discussion about what is okay and what is not. And more now falls in the not okay pile. Is the gender playing field level? Of course it's not. But it's clear that what was acceptable in, say, the 1990s is no longer acceptable today. Sexual harassment should be zero. It's not, but progress is being made. And this is an issue because Jesus made it an issue in that Sermon on the Mount. Jesus had women disciples, as Luke records. Susanna, 
and Joanna, people who followed him and funded his ministry. And that was unheard of. It was considered shocking. Okay? It would have been seen as shameful. You know, women could not be seen as, as political, social, financial leaders. And yet here they were, putting their own personal finances and sponsorship into backing his ministry. You know, when women were marginalized and oppressed, Jesus gave them dignity. To even the woman caught in adultery, it's dignity that he gives. Or the woman who is hemorrhaging and reaches out to touch his cloak, and he brings healing to her. From the lowest to the highest, everybody in between. Let me read of Luke 10 in, uh, of Mary and Martha, that story that some of us will be familiar with. And, and Martha's doing what's, what's expected in her culture. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but she says, you know, get, get, um, get Mary to help me. Get her to do the same, her to do likewise. And Jesus replies, no, Mary's chosen what is better. You know, I'm going to continue to let her sit at my feet and learn. Okay, she's going to learn theology. She's going to learn philosophy. God has given her a rational mind, and that needs to be encouraged, and that needs to be developed. And look what she's doing. She's sitting at the feet of the greatest teacher that there has ever been. It is not going to be taken away from her. What a statement. Because for Jesus, she's not an object to be used. She's a subject, a human being who is to be loved and who is to be poured into um, at this time. That is a radical change that we see in how Jesus interacts uh, with women. This last Tuesday, 11th of October, was the UN's International Day of the Girl Child. Again, you may have seen this headline article, Girls Spend 40% More Time on Chores Than Boys, the UN report finds. UNICEF said that the difference in time spent working amounted to 160 million extra hours a day worldwide. Two out of three girls clean and cook in the home and almost half collect water or firewood. Obviously, probably not in this country. <coughs> they also perform more less visible domestic work like childcare or looking after the elderly, the report says. It also found that the extra workload increased with time. So between ages five and nine, girls spend 30% more time on chores than boys. By 14, it's 50%. Tasks such as gathering water or firewood can also put young girls at increased risk of sexual violence, the report says. In Somalia, girls between 10 and 14 old years old spend 26 hours a week on household chores the most of any country. Burkina Faso and Yemen also have some of the largest labor gaps between boys and girls. Girls sacrifice important opportunities to learn, to grow, and just enjoy their childhood, says the UNICEF reporter. This unequal distribution of labor amongst children also perpetuates gender stereotypes and the double burden on women and girls across generations. And there's data on various other things to do with violence, child marriage, education, etc., in all of that. So it's, it's women, but it's, it's also females and girls and children. And again, back in the ancient world, in the Greek world and the Roman world, there was no real place for children. They, had, you know, they were loved by their families, but they didn't really have any significance or influence or status. And Jesus, as we've heard this morning, brings them back into that place of importance. You know, in fact, when Jesus says to the disciples, you know, they're having that argument about who's the greatest and who's the least. He says, just imagine for the moment the least person 
Okay, and they're all trying to imagine the least person they can imagine. And Jesus brings a child in. Because that in their culture was what the least actually was. And yet, he changes that around. And his followers hear him say, let the little children come to me. Let the little children come to me. Um, there's a guy, a Norwegian guy, who's written a book which has been translated um, by a guy called Brian McNeil. And it's called uh, The Birth of Childhood in Early Christianity. The Birth of Childhood in Early Christianity. When children became people. Because the way we think about children in the, you know, in the prized, cherished way that they are, started because of Jesus. Okay? It didn't exist in that world. And this little community that followed Jesus remembered his words, let the little children come to me. And so that mindset changes towards women, towards children. And then Paul carries that on um, as he um, is involved in taking the church right across uh, the known world. You know, Romans 16, in that letter to the church in Rome, you know, at the end of that, he greets so many women, a long list of women in that letter. He dresses a whole host of women as his co-workers. Phoebe is referred to as a deacon. Junia, outstanding amongst the apostles. His good friends, Priscilla and her husband, Aquila, married couple that were involved in church planting with him. His expectation was that women are involved in the work that is done. And his vision that he has in, uh, um, in that passage where it talks about in Christ there is no male or female, but all are one. In marriage, he brings real change. You know, not only does a, does a wife's body belong to her husband, but he says a husband's body belongs to his wife. You know, husbands are to lay down their lives for their wife as Christ did for the church. You know, these marriages of different ages, you know, which were very unequal in many ways, he now announces an equality and an interdependence in there. Christianity sets up a very different model of society. And it, when you look at it and when you understand it, it is enormously attractive. No wonder this sociologist guy says, well, I'm surprised not every woman came to, to Jesus Christ and came to Christianity because of what happened in it. 